You know, as Christians, knowing the will of God should be very important to us. I mean, it should determine the way we think, the way we act, and even how we plan our futures. But can we know the will of God? That question often comes up. As a student of history, I've learned that our first president, George Washington, he knew that to be successful, he had to respect and follow authority. Specific, excuse me, specifically God's authority. And although he received little formal training, he was a military man who knew both the importance of obeying and how to obey. But listen to what he once said. The whole duty of man is summed up in obedience to God's will. The whole duty of man is summed up in obedience to God's will. But can we know God's will? And you might ask, if we can know God's will, how can we know it? Billy Graham was a man of words. And uh, often spot on words. Listen to what Billy Graham said. If you are ignorant of God's word, you will always be ignorant of God's will. If you're ignorant of God's Word, you'll always be ignorant of God's will. To know God's will, we need to be people of the book. Now, according to our text for today, we can know God's will. In fact, Romans 12, chapter 2, the second half of that verse says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? <clears throat> now let me tell you about one woman's struggle to understand God's will. Her name was Elizabeth Elliot. She died in 2015. She was a Christian author and a speaker. But that's the end of the story. She and her first husband, Jim Elliott, were missionaries to the Quechua tribe in Ecuador. But her husband, Jim, decided with some others to attempt to make missionary contact with the Aka people that were in eastern Ecuador. And while making that attempt, they were all killed. Their plane landed. The tribe came out and killed every one of them. After the death of her husband, and now alone with her 10-month-old daughter, Elizabeth continued to live among the Quechua tribe. However, during that time, two Aka women who lived with them 
taught her the tribe's language. And so against everybody's advice, she went as a missionary to serve the Aka tribe that had killed her husband. Here's what Elizabeth Elliot said about knowing the will of God. The will of God is not something you add to your life. It's a course you choose. You either align yourself up with the Son of God or you capitulate to the principle which governs the rest of the world. Now, before we start digging into the text, there is an image I want to share with you as we define a very important word that Paul uses in our text for today. It's the word transformed. It comes from a Greek word that is metamorpho, from which we get the word metamorphosis. The dictionary says that metamorphosis is the process of transformation from an immature form to an adult form in two or more distinct stages. It goes on to say it's a change of the form of nature of a thing or person into a completely different one. Completely different one. We know it as the process by which the ugly caterpillar becomes the beautiful butterfly. So let's go to the text for today. Just two verses. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosed, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. Now I want you to notice that as Paul transitions into what many see as the application section of this letter, with chapters 1 to 11 having been the theological foundation, the instructional basis for what he was going to go on to say, and chapters 12 to 15 as the application. As he begins to apply what he's been teaching, he does so with what might be considered both a mixture of appeal or entreaty and an exhortation that has the flavor of authority. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and then in the command, don't, do not be. Kind of a mixture. And actually... This, therefore I urge you, is a regular way for Paul to address his readers, even when he's in a standing relationship with a congregation, which he wasn't with Rome, I've shared that with you, but he uses it in Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 4, therefore I urge you. And the word translated urge is the word, listen, it's really neat, it's the word parakaleo. Parakaleo, it's the same identical word that Jesus used in the noun form 
Here, Paul's using it as a verb. Jesus used it in the noun form to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the parakaleo. And the word literally means a calling to one side to help. Paul sees a need and he wants to help. But it's going to be with a bit of a strong hand. His words are chosen carefully. And so he continues by indicating the people whom he's going to address, the platform or ground on which he bases it, as well as the, what the plea consists of. So, first of all, the people that Paul addresses. Notice again how he starts. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, or brothers and sisters. Uh, the people the apostle's about to exhort, he's using a word deliberately because of the personal element, the family connotation. These people are his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I think it's important for us to remember the context. Throughout the earlier chapters, he's been conscious of the tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And he's continued to make that distinction between the two groups. And especially how Israel, ethnic Israel, was a part of the plan in terms of service, but not in terms of salvation. And he's going to return to speaking of them separately in chapters 14 and 15. But now, as he develops this appeal, the distinction between the olive tree's natural branches and those that have been grafted in, he does away with that. That fades into the background. And now all believers, irrespective of their ethnic origin, are brothers and sisters in one international family of God. And so all need to hear the message as a united people. They have precisely the same calling or vocation. And that is to be holy, to be committed. To be humble, loving, and conscientious people of God. I'll probably say this again before the sermon's over. But you realize, don't you, that God doesn't call us to be happy. He calls us to be holy. Far more often in the scriptures, it talks about the importance of being holy, not about being happy. And in terms of breaking down that distinction, how much clearer could it be than in Galatians 3 for where he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for all are one in Christ. And yet, how often and how strongly do we hold on to those divisions? Oh, they're not like us. Notice also that he doesn't move directly into the plea. 
Rather, he reveals the platform for his appeal. And he does that by use of conjunction, therefore, and by his reference to God's mercies, which is a Hebraicism or a Hebrew way of speaking about the, the many and the varied manifestations of God's mercy. For 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. Indeed, that's the good news. That the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners. If you haven't heard anything else for the last 25 weeks, I hope you have heard that you and I don't have any excuses. We do not deserve what God has done for us. We can't earn it by anything we do. We can only accept it by means of what Christ has done. And Paul has recounted how God has given His Son to die for them, to justify them freely by faith. He's included how God has sent His life-giving Spirit and how He's shown mercy by making them His children. In particular, the key word of Romans 9-11 to is mercy. For salvation, according to chapter 9, verse 16, depends not on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And God's purpose was defined in 9.23, as Paul writes, to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy. Further, as the disobedient Gentiles have now received mercy... So too, disobedient Israel will now receive mercy. According to what we saw in chapter 11, verse 30 and following. And the concluding verse, before he broke into that doxology, chapter 11, verse 32, was, For God has consigned, or he's bound, all to disobedience, that he can have mercy on all. It's then, as we begin chapter 12, it's in view of God's mercy that Paul issues his ethical appeal. He knows, not least of all from his own experience, that there is no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of the mercies of God. Listen to me. It's much easier to serve out of thanksgiving than out of obedience. You know that if from nowhere else, from on the job. It's much easier to do the job for someone that you like and you want to, to please and you want to have them feel good about what's going on than it is for somebody that stands up there with a, a finger and a nasty voice saying, do this, do this, do this. F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary, he commends the Scottish minister Thomas Erskine of Linlathen, who has at one point said, in the New Testament, religion is grace. And ethics, or what we do, our choices, is gratitude. You see, it's not by accident that in the Greek language there is one noun, charis, that is translated as both grace and 
and gratitude. God's grace, far from encouraging or condoning sin, God's grace is the spring and the foundation of righteous conduct. It's our gratitude for the mercies of God that should compel us to respond obediently. Let me give you an example from my own life. I probably created a lot more havoc and problems for my dad's mom and dad than I did for my mom's mom and dad. My grandmother on my dad's side was a legalist. And she was a Scot, and she let you know that. She reminded me so much of Queen Elizabeth, that same look. I loved her. But I mean, at her house, to be a good person on Sunday meant you sat on the veranda and watched cars go by. Other than that, anything more than that wasn't a, a good holy way to be on the Sabbath, she called Sunday. On the other hand, I would have done anything for my grandfather and my grandmother, my mom's mom and dad. Anything. I very seldom got in trouble when I was at their house. I was always trying to do extra things to please them. In fact, when we were in Iowa, I'm going to tell myself, when we were in Iowa, we went to a Dunkin' Donut and they had the old-fashioned cake. And I asked the girl, I said, could you nuke that for me for about five to ten seconds? She said, sure. Because Dunkin' Donuts, old-fashioned cake donuts, taste and look just like the ones my grandmother made on a cast iron skillet with grease in it with a wooden spoon where she would tap it and turn it over at just the right time. And I was sitting in Grinnell, Iowa thinking about my grandmother eating old-fashioned cake donuts. You see, because of what God has done. Not because of a fear of hell. Not because of a fear of judgment. Our salvation should never in our minds be just fire insurance. It should be what can I do? We had a cross that was on the back wall You've seen it over at Martin. It was made out of the timbers. And you know, we have one at camp that's on the back wall of our stage there. And I've told the kids so often, our problem is we try to live out here right at the edge of what's the least I have to do to be a Christian? With the fear of falling off into sin all the time in terms of relationships, behaviors, all kinds of weird stuff. Instead of, what can I do to get as close to the cross as possible. And so just what is it that Paul's going to plead for his brothers and sisters at Rome to be doing? 
And the plea is, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But he quickly defines it in a nutshell when he goes on and says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. I've shared with you, I think, how Scott Barchi, who taught at Emanuel School of Religion for years before he went out to to University of California. Scott, one day at one of their ministry retreat meetings with tears on his face. And Scott was a, was, a, was a man that I looked up to in terms of how he lived. With tears on his face, Scott said, when I reflect on my life, I find out that I am more defined by the culture in which I live than I am by the Word of God. Do we look more like our neighbors than we do the Word of God? And you see, what he's saying concerns both our bodies and our minds. It's the presentation of our bodies to God and the transformation of our minds by renewal. In terms of our bodies, he speaks of a living sacrifice. That's an oxymoron. Those people who heard him would have known all about animal sacrifices and how that in a sacrifice the animal was killed. It wasn't living and it wasn't a pretty picture. So what is it that Paul's trying to say? I think that in order to maintain the sacrificial imagery, Paul continues to go on and and uses more terms. Like he talks about us being a priestly people. He talks about us offering or presenting. He talks about things that are holy and things that are pleasing to God. And I think those are the moral equivalents to being physically unblemished and without defect like the lambs that would have been offered as sacrifices. And the word he uses there that's translated spiritual, some translations translated reasonable service, or rational service. In other words, spiritual as opposed to ceremonial. It's not. Did I say that loud enough? I heard it back. It's not just going through the motions. We don't get any quality points or merit points for being here this morning if we're here just to be here. It's not just going through the motions. In fact, J.B. Phillips in his little translation calls it an act of intelligent worship in which our minds are fully engaged And the reference to bodies? Most of the Greek readers that Paul would have been writing to regarded the body as an embarrassing encumbrance. Their slogan was Somasima Estin. The body is a tomb. And even today, some Christians feel self-conscious about their bodies. The traditional, conservative, evangelical invitation is 
Come and give your heart to God. Not our bodies. But Paul is clear that the presentation of our bodies is our spiritual act of worship. It's a significant Christian paradox. No worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward, abstract, or mystical. It has to express itself in concrete acts of service performed by us utilizing our physical bodies. And that's one of the struggles that I have with the way we do worship. It shouldn't be just a monologue with an audience. This is more like a theater model. What's Paul writing in 1 Corinthians? When you come together to worship, each of you brings a hymn, a song, something that was meaningful to you. We should have a significant part of our service dedicated to what you experienced this past week that you want to share with everybody. Not just what I had to study and come together to make sure I had a soliloquy. Shouldn't be a monologue, it should be dialogue that's taking place. And authentic Christian discipleship is going to include both the negative, the mortification, the putting to death of our body's misdeeds, our desires. We saw that back in chapter 8. But also the positive presentation of our members to God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Your mind does matter. John Stott wrote a book many decades ago now, and that was the title of it, Your Mind Matters. If you can get it, it's a good book to, to search out and get and read. Uh, I think they're still available, if, if not anywhere else. Amazon used books. Probably has somebody that doesn't realize the value of what they have and they want to get rid of it. That's Paul's version of the call to nonconformity, to holiness, which is addressed to the people of God throughout Scripture. We're called to be different. Not conformed, different, transformed. Jesse and I recently read how God's Word came to Israel through Moses. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws. Another vivid example is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Surrounded by the false devotion of both the Pharisees and pagans, Jesus said to his disciples, Do not be like them. We're not to be chameleons where we take the color of whatever our surroundings are. That's why Paul issues the summons to the people of God not to be conformed to the prevailing culture, but rather to be transformed. We have to daily refuse to conform to the world's ways. 
and allow ourselves to be transformed according to God's will. And I'm not talking about just going back to the 1800s like some religious groups and riding around in black buggies and wearing black garb. I mean, they conformed to a pattern of the world in the 1800s. It's being different. Being holy. Being willing to be made fun of. For somebody to say, well, you're weird, you're strange, you're different. Yeah, praise the Lord. You see, here's the problem. We seem to be imitative by nature. We want models to copy. And ultimately, there are only two. There's this world, literally this age, which is passing away. And there's God's will, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. And again, the transformation which Paul urges is metamorpho, metamorphosis, where the change that takes place is that extreme change of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. By the way, it's the same word that both Matthew and Mark use of the transfiguration of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. How he was changed, completely changed in their presence there on that mountain. His whole body changed in a way that the disciples couldn't even understand the full significance. Jesus told them that. You won't understand it until after the resurrection. And transformation is not easy. I tried to make it easy one time. I think I've told you this. I tried to make it easy for a caterpillar one time to become the butterfly. And I got a little racer. And I just carefully cut that cocoon so that I wouldn't damage the butterfly. But it died. I didn't cut it. It died because it couldn't fly. Because if it doesn't squeeze its way out of that cocoon, it doesn't get the moisture out of its wings. It's hard work. Don't think living the Christian life is going to be easy. It's hard work. Telling somebody to their face, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not what a Christian man or a Christian woman is supposed to be doing. And the hard work also involves the renewal of our minds. We have to be students of our God's Word. Now let me go back to what I shared from Billy Graham. If you're ignorant of God's Word, you'll always be ignorant of God's will. So here's the challenge. We need to hear the call to live a committed life. See, it goes back to knowing God's will. For Jim Elliot, it meant giving his life, trying to witness. For Elizabeth Elliot, it meant going back to witness to the people who killed her husband. Now, chances are, it will not require that of you and I. But it might. You see, what you need to know is that God has gifted you He's gifted you with particular passions. He's gifted you by placing you in a unique situation. 
I couldn't go to Rich's work there at the collision shop and have the effect of witnessing to his co-workers because they'd say, man, you're doing more damage to the fenders than you're doing good. Now you're creating more work and they wouldn't want to hear anything I had to say. God gifts us. He gives us passion. And He places us in unique settings. And your setting is unique to you. You have people that you can witness to that wouldn't listen to a hoot of what I would say. For one reason, they'd say, well, you're just paid to do that. You're paid to, to come and witness and knock on doors. That's why He's given us His Word. He indwells us with His Holy Spirit. And He emphasizes that His will includes what is good and acceptable and perfect. And whether the decision of the moment involves choosing a spouse or choosing new flooring, we can trust God if we are striving for what is good and acceptable and perfect. And don't Get hung up on wondering if God wants your flooring to be green or purple or blue. That is not the kind of things God's will is concerned about. You don't even find that in Scripture. I wonder if it's God's will if I buy this dress or that dress. He just wants you to have a dress on. And I know that because the one place where it very specifically says this is the will of God, you know what it says? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Write it down, go back and read it, look at it. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And what's sanctification mean? Your holiness. Your willingness to be different. Your willingness to be transformed. In fact, Paul wraps it up nicely in Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, you want to know what the will of God is? Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. What is good and acceptable and perfect. I like the way Alexander McLaren, another Scottish minister from the 1800s, has expressed it. To know beyond doubt what I ought to do and knowing to do it seems to me to be heaven on earth. And the man that has it needs but little more. Let's pray. Father, help us to realize that far more important than what car we might be driving or what house we might be buying or what clothes we might be wearing or what state we might be living in or what church we might be ministering to. Those things depend on our gifts and our passions and our setting. Your will 
is for us to be holy no matter where we are at and what we are doing. Not conformed, but transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.